All right, so tonight we are picking up in our continued study on the subject of soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation. And uh, we're doing a deep dive into this uh, particular study. I think we're about 33 lessons into it so far. And uh, we have a ways to go. Uh, but we are unpacking this uh, carefully. And I'm constantly modifying my notes as I go along. I should say refining them as I continue my studies. We are at this point in our series of lessons doing looking at biblical terminology related to soteriology biblical terminology related to soteriology. And we're looking at these alphabetically. Uh, now, next time I teach through this, which may be a few years down the road, I may structure this a little differently and do it more in a logical format. But for this go-round, this being my first go-around on this particular doctrine, at least to this degree, uh, I'm presenting this alphabetically. So tonight we're going to look uh, at the doctrine of guilt. Guilt. And uh, this is a very interesting uh, doctrine to study. Remember that when we're talking about uh, salvation, when, when we talk about uh, soteriology, when we talk about sharing the gospel with somebody, uh, we should understand that the gospel is the solution to a problem. It's the solution to a problem. But we have to first address what the problem is. Uh, the gospel is the good news, from the Greek word euangelizo, uh, and the EU prefix there, uh, means good or well, like in the word eulogy, a good word about somebody, or like in the name Eugene, somebody who's well-born. When you see that EU prefix on the end of a word, it means good or well. And then logizo uh, for a message. And so when we speak about euangelizo, we talk about good news. But it's the good news that follows the bad news, you see. And this is where we have to deal with the problem before we can get to the solution. And so when we, when we talk about the problem, the problem is sin. Well, the problem is actually twofold at its very basic level. The one is that God is holy and righteous and mankind is sinful. Now, the righteousness and the holiness of God, that's not a problem for God. That's, that's actually good. I mean, that's who he is. It's one of some of his attributes. Uh, but being righteous and holy, God can only do one thing with sin, and that is to condemn it. We are sinners. We are sinners in Adam, sinners by nature, and sinners by choice. And so we fail on multiple fronts. And we are quite skilled to produce sin. The problem is we can't deal with the problem of sin. We cannot fix the problem of our sin. Furthermore, our good works have no saving value. They do not measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. And so we're in a bit of a jam. Uh, because we cannot save ourselves any more than we can jump across the Grand Canyon or throw rocks and hit the moon. Uh, if we were to all line up on the edge of the Grand Canyon and give a good run, well, some of us might jump a little bit farther than the next person, but we are all going to fall short. And if we were to all stand outside and look at the moon and gather side by side and throw rocks at the moon, some of us might throw a little farther than the next person, but we're all going to fall short. And so that's the picture here of our good works. They never measure up. So God is righteous and holy, completely set apart from sin, and can only condemn sin. We are sinners. And so the issue then, is God going to judge sin in the offender, or is he going to judge it in a substitute? And this is where the cross comes in, because the cross is the solution. It's the divine side to the solution. It's the only solution that satisfies God's righteous demands toward our sins. 
Because nearly 2,000 years ago, when God the Son came into the world and took upon himself humanity and walked among men, he lived an absolutely righteous life. He was perfect. He knew no sin. He committed no sin. And in him was no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, 1 Peter 2.22, and 1 John 3.5 all make very clear. And Jesus then went to the cross. He went to the cross and he died a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life that we could never earn. And he did this voluntarily. Remember John 10.18, Jesus said, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And so he went to the cross and he died, not for his own sins. He had committed no sins. He was guilty of nothing. He was perfect. But when he went to the cross and he hung between heaven and earth, between noon and three, when the sky grew dark, God the Father took all of our sins, all the sins of humanity, and placed them upon Christ and there judged him. And Jesus willingly bore this. He bore the judgment of God that rightfully belongs to us. And in 1 John 2.2, it says that he died, that he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Uh, Propitiation is a wonderful doctrine. We're going to hit it here in a few weeks. But it means satisfaction. And it means that what Christ accomplished on the cross satisfied every righteous demand of the Father with regard to our sin. Now, even though Christ died for everybody, that's unlimited atonement. And even though the gospel is available to everyone, to whoever will may come, it is only beneficial for those who believe in Christ because at the moment of faith in Christ, we receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive eternal life. We receive the gift of righteousness. And this is purely by grace because none of us earn or deserve it. It is purely the grace of God. But at the cross, we see God's righteousness to judge our sin, but we also see his love toward us, the sinner. Because Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when we looked at that passage, we looked at the Greek preposition huper, which is translated for, and it's one of two prepositions that communicates the idea of substitution. That Christ died as a substitute for us. He died in our place. First Peter 3.18 says that Christ died for sins once for all. <clears throat> that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, so that he might bring us to God. And so God accomplished for us through Christ what we could never accomplish on our own. And of course, to be saved, man needs only Christ. No one else, nothing more. And so to be saved, we come with the empty hands of faith and we turn to Christ and we turn to Christ alone and we believe upon him. We accept the good news of the gospel as 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 tells it, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We believe, we accept that news as historical fact because that's what it is. Christ lived in real time, in real space. And in fact, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he goes on, he says that Christ was seen by many. Um, And so he was seen by even 500 brethren at one time, Paul says, many of whom are still alive. 
And Paul's whole line of reasoning there is, look, if you don't believe me, go and talk to these people. They're still alive. Go talk to Charlie Brown. Go talk to Linus. Go talk to Lucy. Go talk to Schroeder. Go talk to Pigpen. They live down here on such and such lane. Don't believe me? Go and talk because there was eyewitness account to the resurrection of Christ, which meant that he conquered both sin and death. And so we, we, we hear this good news, and we, we, we understand it to be historical fact, and so we, we, we hear the good news of what Christ accomplished for us, and the issue then becomes, will we believe in him? Will we turn to Christ and Christ alone? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And Acts 4.12 says, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is the name of Christ. And in Acts 16.30, when the Philippian jailer asked uh, Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The answer came back as very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You see, and it's that simple. It's so simple that a child can do it. And sometimes we muddy the water. We, we mess it up and try to bring along good works. And good works uh, should follow salvation, but they're never the condition of it. No good works before, during, or after salvation Uh, add to the work of Christ. What Christ accomplished uh, was finished at the cross. In fact, John 19.30, the last thing that Jesus said was one word in the Greek. He said, tetelestai. It's translated as, it is finished. And that means that our salvation was finished at the cross. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to add to it. It was completed at the cross. And so we come and we trust in Christ and Christ alone. Because again, man needs only Christ to be saved. But when we talk about guilt, when we understand guilt, it is our position before a righteous and holy God. It is our standing before God prior to coming to faith in Christ. Now, when we come to faith in Christ, uh, we are no longer coming before God as judge because the unbeliever stands before God as judge, as the judge of all the earth, a righteous judge. But when we come to faith in Christ, we don't approach God as judge. We approach him as our father. And according to Hebrews 4.16, he is one who sits upon a throne of grace. He sits upon a throne of grace. And so it's a very different relationship for us who have entered into that. Now, God extends grace to all humanity. There is a common grace that he extends to all. Uh, But there is that special grace that he extends to those who believe in Christ, to those who are part of the family of God. So when we talk about guilt, it is our standing before God uh, before we come to faith in Christ. So biblically speaking, guilt implies that one has acted contrary to God's moral character and laws. Divine laws are a reflection of the righteousness of God. Now, what follows here in this definition is a definition that I lifted out of my doctoral dissertation, because I completed my doctoral dissertation back in June of 2017, and and after defending it uh, uh, in front of several uh, professors, because you have to defend it, you know, which is not always easy to do, uh, but that's part of what makes it a challenge. Because in education, it should always be that we're reaching up. It should that we it should be that we are always challenged to reach up and to learn something new. And so when you're writing your doctoral dissertation or, or any, any graduate work, you're being challenged, and then you have to defend it. But this definition is what I had constructed uh, based upon uh, my studies on the subject of the righteousness of God. And so um, here is what I provided. Uh, 
So the righteousness of God may be defined as the intrinsic, immutable, moral perfection of God, from which he commands all things in heaven and earth, and declares as good that which conforms to his righteousness, and and as evil that which deviates. So when we talk about the righteousness of God as that intrinsic, that is, it is essential to his very nature, it is part of who he is, it is intrinsic to God, and it is immutable, meaning it doesn't change, but it is the intrinsic, immutable, moral perfection of God, and it is from his righteousness, from this uh, attribute of righteousness, that God then commands all things in heaven and earth, so both in the heavenly realm and on earth, and declares as good that which conforms to his righteousness and as evil that which deviates. Now, by the way, when we talk about uh, good and evil, when we talk about right and wrong, when we talk about law and crime, when we use this sort of terminology, we are assuming a standard. We are assuming a standard. And, uh, and this is something I taught before. We spent about a year and a half working through the book of Deuteronomy, and we talked about the laws uh, that God had given through Moses and how deviation from those laws is deviation from the standard. And so we call something, for example, example, a criminal act because it deviates from the standard of law. Now, there's human law and there's divine law. And uh, sometimes, ideally, human law should, uh, should agree with divine law. Unfortunately, it doesn't always Um, But when we think about these terms, we always have to define it according to a standard. Now, you'll see how this is important here in just a little bit. Now, God's character is the basis upon which all just laws derive, either divine laws from God himself or human laws which conform to his righteousness. Now, I have a footnote here in uh, in the notes that I sent out, if you have the notes. And in the footnote, I just made the comment there that if there is no God, then there is no absolute standard for right and wrong. And at that moment, we are left with arbitrary laws based on manufactured values. You see, the line of reasoning goes like this, that if there is no absolute moral lawgiver, then there are no absolute moral laws. And if there are no absolute moral laws, then in effect, there is really no right and wrong. In fact, right and wrong become merely an artificial construct of the mind, become something that we manufacture arbitrarily. And if there is no right and wrong, then what is, is right. Because that's all we're left with, is just simply what is. But at that point, the conversation's over. Uh, There's really not much more to say. So it always strikes me as interesting when I have discussions with atheists, and I I do, I run into them, and it's very, very fascinating to me, because in the discussion, invariably, they're going to say, oh, well, this should be, or or that ought to be, and and they'll talk about things that are right and things that are wrong, and I'll say, now, wait a minute, where, where are you getting that language? You know, why should something be this way? Why ought something uh, to be that way? Where are you getting your shoulds and oughts? Because what you're doing is you are assuming a universal moral value. You are assuming something uh, that everybody subscribes to. In fact, you're projecting it upon me, and you declare this to be right and that to be wrong. Well, how do you get right and wrong when you have no God? If you live in a purely materialistic universe, if there is no God, and we live in a purely materialistic universe, 
And the argumentation is, is from the atheists is that there is no God, and we do live in a purely materialistic universe, which, by the way, came into existence 13.8 billion years ago, purely as the product of, of chance, uh, that this uh, 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 impersonal, unintelligent uh, choice or, or act occurred where there was this big bang, and, uh, and so everything was set into motion, but really everything gets reduced down to, to merely the product of matter, motion, time, and chance. That everything is, is simply material, that it's just matter. And matter must be set into motion in order for chemistry to work. So you have matter, motion, time, and you need deep time in order for the atheist uh, evolutionaristic system to work. And everything becomes the product of chance. By the way, if you throw out intelligent design, really what you're left with is unintelligent chaos. That's, that's really the alternative. And it would say that everything that exists, everything, this beautiful complexity of life in the atmosphere, on the earth, in the ocean, even our, even our, our basic uh, human makeup, would say that we're just the product of matter, motion, time, and chance. That we're just evolving bags of protoplasm. Uh, that we're just the accidental collection of molecules. That we come from the goo to the zoo to you. Uh, to borrow a phrase from Norman Geisler. Ultimately, we come from nothing significant, we go to nothing significant, and that means that in the end, mankind is nothing significant. Really, we're just a zero, if you really want to get right down to it. And that's what the uh, atheistic, materialistic system can produce. Now, they don't like that. And they'll say, oh, no, that's terrible. And I say, well, how do you get that? Because there's no reason for me to exist. You say that I'm just an accident that I just sort of percolated up uh, by, by random evolutionaristic processes over time, and here I am. There was nothing that brought me into being. I'm just an accident. Just like you're an accident, everything's an accident. So how do you get into morals? How do you get into right and wrong? How do you say this is right and that's wrong? This is good and that is evil? Where do you get your language? Where do you get your morals from? I'll tell you what it is, is ultimately it becomes a form of thievery. Because really what they're doing is they're borrowing language from another system, often from the Christian system, because they will borrow language. I was having a discussion one time a few years ago with a lady who was very, very bright, and uh, I suspected that there was a lot of positive volition going on in her because she was, she was pretty fired up and she was pretty argumentative, but she was very, very bright. And she was working on her master's degree, and we used to have some really uh, lively discussions. But I'll give her this. Whenever we finished the discussion, she would really sit and think about it. And she said, you know, there's something to what you're saying. And we were talking about it one day. And I said, you know, I said, you, you come to this uh, world and to this life and you say, you know, uh, that everything is the product of chance, right? That there is no God. We live in a purely materialistic universe. And I asked her, I said, is pedophilia wrong? And she said, oh, yeah. She didn't even blink an eye. I said, is it always wrong? Is it universally wrong? Is it wrong all the time, everywhere, under every circumstance? She said, yeah. I said, how do you get that? Now, she didn't like that. She didn't like the way the conversation was going. But in the end, she had no way to defend it, you see. And I told her, I said, look, I said, it's easier for me to believe and to accept the biblical worldview that a personal, infinite personal creator God exists and that he brought everything into being. And that I am intentionally designed by God who created me to have the form that I have. And that I am made in the image of God. And it, is much, it takes more faith uh, for me to be an atheist than it does for me to be a Christian. Because I have to buy into so much more 
and so we were talking about it. But, you know, as I was going through and I was explaining these things to her and giving her the Christian worldview, I began to see a sparkle in her eye. I began to see her really begin to latch on to some of the things that were being communicated. But you get into this issue when you're talking with people about right and wrong and things being compared to a standard. And when you really begin to push it back and you're really dealing with issues pertaining to metaphysics and ultimate reality and the origin of things, uh, that really is where you have to push the atheist, uh, at least in my discussions. So again, it goes back to this issue as the footnote is there, that if there is no God, then there is no absolute standard for right and wrong. And again, we are left with arbitrary laws based on manufactured values. Now, um, going back to the Word of God, the Bible reveals, according to Psalm 11:7, that the Lord is righteous, and notice He loves righteousness. The Lord is righteous, and He loves righteousness. Furthermore, we are informed that at a future time uh, that He is coming to judge the earth, and He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. By the way, the righteousness of God represents His standard, The justice of God represents his action based on that standard. Because what the righteousness of God approves of, the justice of God blesses. And what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. And so you see how the standard uh, becomes the basis for the action. And so, by the way, the righteousness of God approves of the righteousness of God. And that is one of the reasons why at salvation we receive, according to Romans 5.17, the gift of righteousness. We receive God's very righteousness given to us as a gift. And, uh, and God approves of his righteousness within us. Now, he does not approve of our righteousness. Because according to Isaiah 64.6, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. And we've talked about that in the past. So again, he is coming to judge the earth, and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And according to 2 Timothy 4.1, he will judge the living and the dead. Now the problem is that all humanity is corrupt. And according to Romans 3.9, all are under sin. All are under sin. And Romans 3.10 tells us that there is none righteous, none righteous, no, not even one. There is not one person who measures up to the standard of God's perfect righteousness, none. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person uh, falls short of the glory of God. Now, we have to define sin. Now, sin may be defined as the breaking of God's moral laws. In fact, the closest word that I can find... Uh, in the English, to the word for sin, because uh, words kind of lose their meaning over time. But the closest word that I would find in the English would be the word crime, because it is a violation of God's law, of his character and his directives. And so uh, when I think about sin, I I think of it in the modern sense of, of a criminal act. Because it is, a, it is a defiance. It is an acting contrary. It is when one sets his or her will against the will of God and then acts contrary to the very righteousness and to the very directives of God. So sin may be, may be defined as the breaking of God's moral laws. In 1 John 3, 4, 
uh, John gives this definition. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It is lawlessness. Now, sin is when we transgress God's law and depart from his intended path. According to J.I. Packer, he says, quote, Sin may be comprehensively defined as lack of conformity to the law of God in act, habit, attitude, outlook, disposition, motivation, and mode of existence, end quote. The motivation behind sin is self-interest. The motivation behind sin is self-interest. In fact, when you go back to the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve directives. He directed Adam to keep the garden, to guard it, to protect it. Uh, they were given freedom. They could eat from any tree of the garden within, you know, in the garden. They could eat uh, pears for breakfast and peaches for lunch and apricots for dinner. And the next day have apples and oranges and bananas. And next day shake it up and try something different. They had freedom. They had freedom within the garden, and God created the sphere within which their freedom operated. Um, and there was one negative directive, and the negative directive was, you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So they had one negative directive. And when Satan comes in, he begins to question Eve on what God had said. And of course, she tweaked what God said because she tweaked it by adding the phrase, and shall not touch it, because she was uh, referencing God's directive and said that he told her that you shall not eat from it or touch it. Well, God never said don't touch the tree. You could go up, you could hug the tree, you could, uh, you could uh, uh, pull the fruit off the tree, you could make a pie, uh, you, could, you, could, uh, you could do all sorts of stuff with the tree. You just couldn't eat. But she added an element. She said, you shall not touch it. That, that was what she added to the word of God. And once Satan saw that there was some misunderstanding of the word of God, he then uh, lunged in with a full head-on attack and told her, he said, no, you will not die. And, uh, and so she then begins to look upon the tree as something that's desirable. Well, when she takes the fruit off the tree and gives it to her husband who is with her and they both eat, at that moment, what they're saying to God is not your will be done, but my will be done. And so they set their will against the will of God and sought to operate independently of God's directive. Now, by the way, you find a reversal of that in the Garden of Eden, excuse me, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because when Jesus was struggling with the cross, notice he said the exact, exact opposite. He said, in effect, not my will, but thy will be done. And so Jesus, as the last Adam, accomplished perfectly what the first Adam failed to do. So again, the motivation behind sin is self-interest. It means that we set our wills against the will of God, that we desire our interests above his, his interests and are willing to act contrary to his desires. Now, according to Augustus Strong, the sinner makes self the center of his life and sets himself directly against God and constitutes his own interest, the supreme motive, and his own will, the supreme rule, end quote. Samuel Harris, by the way, I, I, I was uh, reading an article out of Bibliotheca Sacra, which is the uh, uh, theological journal that's put out by Dallas Theological Seminary. And I found this interesting article by Samuel Harris on the Christian law of self-sacrifice. And, uh, and he has uh, uh, four characteristics of sin, which I thought were very interesting. He says, quote, It is self-sufficiency, the opposite of Christian faith. 
It is self-will, the opposite of Christian submission. It is self-seeking, the opposite of Christian benevolence. And it is self-righteousness, the opposite of Christian humility and reverence. And I thought that was very interesting. Very, very interesting. So he lists those four uh, classifications that it's self-sufficiency. I can do it my way. I've got it. Uh, I don't need God. Uh, I can do it. Uh, I, can, I can make it happen all on my own. And it's self-will. It is the will set operating independently. In fact, the word that comes to mind is autonomous. Autonomous. And the word autonomous at its etymological base according to the root meanings of the words, because it's a compound word. You have the word autos, which means self, and namos, which means law. And so when we talk about something being autonomous, we talk about it being a law unto itself. Well, the person who functions autonomously is, in effect, operating as a law unto themselves. That is self-willed. And so they recognize no other uh, authority other than themselves. It is also self-seeking in that it seeks self-interest and it is self-righteous because it seeks to elevate self and again it's operating according to an artificial construct of one's own uh, self-righteous standards. Now Merrill F. Unger, and um, here I'm quoting from the Unger's Bible Dictionary. If you don't have that on your bookshelf, I do recommend the Unger's Bible Dictionary. And a very, very solid uh, Bible teacher, by the way. And he says, quote, The underlying idea of sin is that of, is that of law and of lawgiver. The lawgiver, notice he says, is God. Hence, sin is everything in the disposition and purpose and conduct of God's moral creatures that is contrary to the expressed will of God. He goes on, he says, the sinfulness of sin lies in the fact that it is against God, even when the wrong we do is to others or ourselves, end quote. Very, very good point. Now, as sinners before a holy and righteous God, we bear an objective guilt because we have violated his holy character and righteous demands. You see, we are responsible to God for what we have, for what we are, and for what we do. We have Adam's original sin, which has been imputed to our account. We are sinners by nature, and we do sin personally. And I think of passages like Proverbs 20, verse 9, which says, Who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. The answer is no one. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. And, of course, one of the uh, uh, strongest passages is Isaiah 64.6, which says, All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And notice there, he's not talking about our sin. He's talking about our best efforts. All of our righteous deeds. All of our good deeds. Because if we were to take all of our righteousness, all of our good deeds throughout our life production, and put it into a bag and bring it to God and demand the trade-in value, it would be worth one filthy garment. And as I mentioned before, the literal Hebrew reads, it, it is like a menstrual garment. 
is literally what the text says. Now, God holds us accountable for our sinfulness. He holds us accountable. So you see how the, the construct here, how, the, how this, uh, uh, this truth of Scripture is important, because again, we're talking about the righteousness of God. We're talking about the sinfulness of man. So God holds us accountable for our sinfulness. And our guilt, by the way, is based on what God says about us and not our subjective impressions of ourselves. And that's an important point because we have to understand that, again, our guilt is based on what God says about us and not merely our subjective impressions about ourselves. A few years back, I, was, I use playful language sometimes when I'm interacting with people at the office, and there was a lady, very nice lady, very moral person, and, uh, and anyway, she was walking by my, uh, by my desk one day, and I said, good morning, you sinner. And I just threw it out there just sort of playfully. And uh, she stopped and she kind of threw her head back. And there was this long pause. And we stood there for a few seconds while I was seated and she was standing. And we were there for a few seconds and had a blinking contest and just a a few moments of silence. And finally she looks at me and just, uh, she was just shocked. She was like, I'm not not a sinner. (laughs) It caught me off guard um, because I didn't expect her to come. And I looked at her and I said, you do go to church, don't you? She said, oh yeah, I've been going to a church in, in uh, Alito, Texas for the last you know, couple years, me and my husband go. And I said, and it is a Bible church, right? And she goes, oh yeah. And I said, and you've never understood the concept that you're a sinner before a righteous and holy God? She goes, no, I, I'm, I'm not a sinner. I said, so you're not guilty before God because of your uh, because of your sin nature because of your conduct before God literally she was shocked and it was just like you know somebody somebody walked up to her and just smacked her I mean she was just just really just caught off guard and so I said well what's your what's your church and so she told me and I googled it and I found it and pulled it up online and I was reading through the doctrinal statement and the doctrinal statement read fine and it you know it talked about how everybody's a sinner and Adam sinner by nature sinner by choice we're all guilty before a righteous and holy God I said, can I recommend that you go home and that you read the doctrinal statement of your church that you attend? But this is where we are. Some people just don't see themselves. And she certainly did not see herself as a sinner. She did not see herself that way. And even though I was being somewhat playful in my language, um, it it just totally shocked her. It just totally threw her off. And... um, So again, when we're talking about guilt, we're talking about guilt based on an objective standard, not a subjective impression. Uh, J.C. Moyer, and here I'm quoting from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, another good source, uh, he says, guilt is both the legal and moral condition that results from breaking God's laws, end quote. And Louis Burkhoff adds, guilt is the state of deserving condemnation or of being liable to punishment for the violation of a law or a moral requirement. He goes on, he says, it expresses the relation which sin bears to justice or to the penalty of the law. And C.W. Stinsky, and here I'm quoting from the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, He says, quote, In biblical language and thought, guilt and sin are closely related. While sin usually denotes an action of personal failure in deed, word, or thought, guilt is a legal term that denotes the state resulting from that action. Guilt is an objective fact and arises when God's standards have not been met. 
when the Creator's claim on His creation is neglected or refused, whether willfully or unintentionally, end quote. And that is a very, very good definition with regard to guilt. Um, And so again, it denotes uh, an action of personal failure. And so we have to look at it as something that is ours. And again, that's whether in deed, word, or thought. Because we can sin in different ways. We can have mental attitude sins. We can have verbal sins, sins of the flesh, sins of omission, sins of commission. We can have these different classifications of sin. And I have a sin nature that can tempt me from within. I'm tempted from without. And by the way, the Christian always battles on three fronts. We always battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we are constantly faced with these temptations. But I can have mental attitude sins. I can commit the mental sin of lust. I can commit the mental sin of murder. I mean, I can be lying in bed at night all by myself with quietness all around me, and I can in my mind uh, begin to think about and ruminate on what happened earlier in the day, and somebody said something snarky or, or offensive or, or something against me, or somebody lied to me or about me or caused me some, some harm or something, and I can think about the injustice of their action, and I can set up a mental drama in my head. I can set up a, an environment. I can set up a whole uh, construct. I can even write the script, and somebody can say something to me, and I can say something to them, and then I can uh, correct them, I can rebuke them, I can choke them, I can knock them out, and, and then once I've committed mental murder, I can bring them back to life and rerun the whole drama through my head. I can commit it over and over and over again. I can have all sorts of mental attitude sin. I can commit the mental attitude sin of fear, of worry, of doubt. Uh, I, can, I can commit all sorts of mental attitude sins. I can commit sins of the tongue through things that I say, through gossip, through maligning, through character assassination. I can commit sins of deed with regard to my flesh. Uh, Again, things I do, things I don't do. Uh, Sin is quite a large category. And so again, it speaks of an action of personal failure. And again, he says it is a legal term, a legal term. You see, he's, he's, he's looking here at God as the judge, as the moral lawgiver and the one who judges based upon the laws that he's given. And so it is objective. It is, it is guilt is a legal term, again, that denotes the state of, uh, resulting from this action. And again, guilt is an objective fact and arises when God's standards have not been met. You see, and this is why I say it's important that we understand these things because, when, again, when we're presenting the gospel, we have to present it as the good news that follows the bad news. But we have to get to the bad news, and we have to show that God is righteous, that God is holy, and that all mankind is sinful, that we are guilty before God and therefore deserving of the lake of fire. None of us deserves heaven. None of us deserves grace. None of us deserves forgiveness. None of us deserves these things. And God is gracious to us. God is slow to anger. God is patient. God is kind. God is loving. But that's because that's who he is. And not because we're sweet and lovely and wonderful and marvelous, because we were not and we are not. And so when God treats us in kindness, that's more a reflection of his character than our being deserving of that. But when it comes to our being, uh, when our standing with, with regard to our standing before God, we are in fact guilty. All humanity is guilty. Again, there is none righteous, no, not even one. So again, being guilty before God is a fact and not a feeling. It's a fact and not a feeling. And it is based on the objective truth of God's word and not our subjective impressions 
or fluctuating emotions. I think that there is a move within our country uh, by uh, people and organizations to undermine the very foundations of our society. I think that there I think that there is a deconstruction going on and that there is an undermining of the core values and institutions that make a country stable and strong. And I'm talking about a government, I'm talking about marriage, I'm talking about the family, I'm talking about the work and and human volition. Uh, I'm talking about the undermining of those core institutions that make for a stable society and we see the breakdown across the board. And, uh, and the fact that people are grossly ignorant of God and his word uh, really is behind a lot of it. And I would even argue that behind the human scene are things that are going on in the spiritual realm uh, with regard to a lot of satanic and demonic activity that is seeking to undermine our country. And we're being undermined again uh, politically. We're being undermined militarily. We're being undermined academically. We're being undermined in every institution from the top down. And it's only a matter of time. If we do not turn things around, if this nation does not turn around and begin to operate operate according to divine viewpoint and really make good decisions based upon the truth of God's word, we're headed for a wreck. We're headed for a wreck. And only those believers, only those believers who have attained a level of spiritual maturity and who have enough doctrine in their soul to provide a fortress uh, for them to be stable in their soul, only those believers will have what it takes to be able to stand when the crisis hits. Uh, because they will have the doctrinal fortitude within themselves to be able to live by faith and to be able to stand even when everything else is collapsing around us. And that's why I've made the comment before that the stability of the Christian is predicated to a large degree on the biblical content and continuity of our thinking. You see, it's not only what we think, content, but what we keep on thinking, continuity, that determines the stability within our souls. And we have to be saturated with God's Word. We have to have divine viewpoint flowing in the stream of our consciousness. And it has to be borne out and applied to every aspect of our life, to our marriage, to our work, to our finances, to our daily choices. From every aspect of our life, we need to be thinking in terms of divine viewpoint and making good choices based on that wisdom. But there is a tremendous shortage of solid Bible teaching across the country. And it is my prayer that that turns around. But I don't know what, what, what it's going to take to make that happen. But the Word of God must be communicated. It must be taught. So again, our guilt before God is based on the objective truth of God's Word and not our subjective impressions and fluctuating emotions. By the way, when I'm talking with people about these things, I always point people to the Word. I always give them Scripture, 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 because I want the Scripture itself to be what gets into their thinking and begins to flow in the stream of their conscious thoughts from day to day. Uh, because it's the Word of God that changes a person. And when the Word of God goes forth, it accomplishes what God intends for it to accomplish and never returns to Him void. And the Word of God is alive. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow. And it is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And when I put the Word of God out there, trust me, I'm very kind about it. I'm very gentle because 2 Timothy 2.24-26 says the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, 
and with gentleness correcting those who are, are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. But when I put the word of God out there, I just simply put it out there, and I let it do what it's going to do, because it will accomplish what God intends for it to accomplish. And, uh, and so I will put it out there. And, uh, you know, the poodle doesn't need to defend the lion. The lion can take care of itself. And so when I put the word of God out there, I just simply trust that God, the Holy Spirit, will then begin to work in the heart of that person. Now, again, this is where I just simply set it out there as objective truth. Now, our emotions are a blessing from the Lord. I like my emotions. But our emotions are a blessing from the Lord, but only when properly calibrated to the truth of his revelation. Otherwise, our emotion can be an impediment to our relationship with him. Uh, and I have found that to be true over and over and over again. Because when I'm in a crisis and my emotions spike, I can't let my emotions dictate. I need to uh, keep my emotions in check and I need to learn to bring my thoughts into captivity. Because 2 Timothy 10.5, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 10.5 uh, says that we are bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And so we have to uh, bring our thoughts and make that and make truth what guides us, not our feelings. Again, I like my feelings, but I can't let them govern me. Now, humanism, that is the perspective that uh, God does not exist, that man is the center of all things, rejects God in his revelation, and humanism places mankind at the center of morality and meaning. Francis Schaeffer, a brilliant man and a man who had a great impact upon me theologically, uh, he explains humanism, quote, as man beginning from himself with no knowledge except what he himself can discover and no standards outside of himself. In this view, man is the measure of all things as the Enlightenment expressed it, end quote. And that is taken from his book, A Christian Manifesto. But he's right when he talks about people operating from no standards outside of themselves, and that man becomes the measure of all things. That is really because divine viewpoint is completely devoid from the person who operates on the basis of humanism. Now, atheism, and I'm going to use it as a synonym for humanism, atheism creates a problem concerning moral absolutes. As I mentioned earlier, for if there is no God, then there is no moral lawgiver. And if there is no moral lawgiver, then there are no absolute, no moral absolutes. And we are left to conclude that what is, is right. And any further discussion about right and wrong becomes nothing more than opinion. Nothing more than opinion. And I was talking with a lady and we had a number of conversations and it finally came to the point to where she agreed. She said, okay, there are no moral absolutes. And I said, so when you tell me that something's right and wrong, really what you're giving me is just a psychology report. You're just telling me what you personally think and what you feel inside, but it's really nothing more than you. And uh, she had to admit, she's, she, she said, that's, that's correct. And, and then we started talking about the, the moral majority, and I said, you can't even go there uh, to say that the, that the majority determines what's moral, because I can very quickly go back, uh, you know, 70 years or so, and look at World War II, and I can say, well, the majority in, in Germany agreed with Hitler. Are we going to say, well, the moral majority determines what's right? Because that's what you're left with if you move away from the individual and you start talking about groups. And, of course, you know, the conversation kind of spiraled out from there. 
but Francis Schaeffer, and here I'm going to quote him from his book, How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture, a book that I think every Christian should read, by the way, uh, a very, very uh, thought-provoking book. But he says, quote, If there is no absolute moral standard, then one cannot say in a final sense that anything is right or wrong. By absolute, we mean that which always applies, that which provides a final or ultimate standard. There must be an absolute if there are to be morals, if, and there must be an absolute if there are to be real values. If there is no absolute beyond man's ideas, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are merely left with conflicting opinions, end quote. And he's absolutely right. Now, those who reject God are left to create and impose arbitrary values on others. And, of course, the tyrants of the world are glad to bully and control others by means of strong-arm tactics, whether social intimidation, economic coercion, or brute physical force. And in our day here in America, as Christian, uh, we really, for the person who is strong in the faith, uh, we will not be intimidated. We will not be bullied. Uh, Now, we will submit to authority, we will respect authority, but when that authority seeks to operate contrary to the authority of God and His Word, then the Christian has not only the right, but the duty to say no to that authority. And, uh, and that is legitimate civil disobedience, by the way. And you see that in, in, in Exodus, where the midwives refused to kill the first male-born children, even though Pharaoh gave an edict that all the male Hebrews uh, born were to die. You see in Daniel 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, when he gave a command that everybody was to bow down to the golden statue. And he said, they said, look, king, give us a chance. Don't give us a chance. We're not going to bow down. You think of in Daniel 6, where a command came down from the king that everybody was to pray to the king for 30 days. And, and Daniel went back to his room and opened his window and continued to pray to God. He disobeyed. Now, he didn't go to the king with a fist-in-your-face attitude. He wasn't, that, he wasn't rebellious in that sense. But he did defy He did defy the king's edict. He had no choice, because to do so would be to disobey God. In uh, in Acts chapter 4 and 5, when Peter was told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, he posed the question, he said, whom shall I obey, God or man? And the answer is obvious, it's God. And he took his 39 lashes with a whipping, and he walked away rejoicing, because he'd been found worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. And so when we begin to, uh, these pressures will come upon us, And they will come upon us, and you can expect the pressures to come upon you. We live in a fallen world, and it's not reformable. It's the the devil's world, and it will continue until Christ returns. And listen, any dead fish can float downstream, but it takes somebody who is alive to swim against the stream and to go against the current, and that is the believer, that is the Christian who is advancing in his or her walk with the Lord, and advancing to spiritual maturity, and seeking to glorify God, and edify others, and reach the spiritual high ground that is the Christian life that God calls us to reach and to live by. 
But we have to recognize that we live in this fallen world, and we need to know how the fallen world operates. And these arbitrary morals that they manufacture, that they either conjure up or borrow or, or pluck out of thin air, are merely arbitrary standards. The only objective standard for measuring righteousness or guilt is set forth in God's Word, which defines reality. The Bible reveals that God is the judge of all the earth, that He is a righteous judge, and that He judges righteously. And Exodus 34, 7 says, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But the Bible also reveals that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth and one who pardons all your iniquities, and uh, that is for those of us who come to him in honesty and humility. Uh, and by the way, God is very gracious. He's very patient. And sometimes when somebody sins, God doesn't lower the boom. God is very gracious. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's slow to anger. But please understand that though the grace of God is infinite in scope, it is not eternal in its duration. It does not go forever. Because at death, all of life's decisions are fixed and grace comes to an end. And what one does in time with Christ determines their eternal destiny. Because at death, all of life's decisions become fixed. And at that moment, uh, we will either stand before the Bema Seat of Christ to receive our rewards, or unbelievers will stand before the great white throne judgment. And by the way... I, uh, I, I, when I'm talking with an atheist and they say, oh, I don't believe that God exists, deep down inside they know that God exists. Because every person who stands before the great white throne judgment, there will not be one single person who will look up there and say, now who are you? Because everyone knows who he is. And when that day comes, they will know why they are there. They will know. Uh, now, for those who come to him in humility, that is, those who come to God in humility, for the unbeliever, it's coming in humility before his throne and to look at Christ as the solution to the problem. Those who come to him in humility, who are like the tax collector, who in Luke eighteen thirteen was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice what Jesus says in verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified because he approached God in humility and they will find God to be merciful. And by the way, God is merciful. He is merciful. Uh, but, for those who, but for those of us who trust Christ as Savior, uh, we are blessed with forgiveness of sins. And by the way, Acts 10.43 is a key verse on that. Uh, because here Peter says of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, notice everyone, that's everyone who believes in him, receives what? Forgiveness of sins. And receives there translates the Greek verb lombano. It means to, to receive, to accept, to take hold of. And so at the moment of faith in Christ, the benefits of the cross are applied. They receive forgiveness of sins. And we also get the gift of righteousness, what Paul calls the gift of righteousness. We're going to talk about that here in a few lessons when we get into the doctrine of imputation. You've got my study notes. You can read ahead on that if you want to see that for yourselves. But we are blessed with forgiveness of sins. And by the way, salvation is subtraction plus addition. It is subtraction in the sense that we receive the forgiveness of sins. It is addition because we receive eternal life and we receive the gift of righteousness. 
And at that moment, we become children of God with the promise that we will spend eternity in heaven with him. J. Dwight Pentecost, and here I'm quoting him from a little book called Things Which Become Sound Doctrine. By the way, if you don't have his little book, Things Which Become Sound Doctrine, please get it. It is a wonderful, wonderful book, a very solid read. It's a little book, but it is packed. Uh, But Dr. Pentecost says, quote, If you should be without Christ as your personal Savior, and he says, If you should be without Christ as your personal Savior, you stand guilty before God because you are still in Adam's race. Even though Christ bore that sin, it means nothing to you until you are related to him by faith. The righteousness of Christ cannot be imputed to you unless you personally receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. End quote. So if you have not received Christ as your Savior, then, along with the Apostle Paul, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How are you reconciled to God? There's only one way. And that is to come to Christ and Christ alone. Because man needs only Christ to be saved. And nearly 2,000 years ago, the Son of God came into this world and took upon himself humanity. And he lived an absolutely righteous life. And he went to a cross and died a death he did not deserve. In order that we might have a life that we could never earn. And as he hung between heaven and earth, God the Father took all of our sins and placed them upon Christ. And he was judged in our place. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? Well, Peter says, so that he might bring us to God. You see, and so when we come to Christ and we believe in him and we accept the historical fact that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, which shows us that he conquered sin and death and that he was seen by many, And when we trust in him and him alone, no one else, nothing more, when we put all of our confidence and trust in Christ and Christ alone, then we receive at that moment forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the gift of righteousness, a spiritual gift. We are transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We go from being children of Satan to being children of God. We become brothers and sisters to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are brought into the royal family of God. And then the the objective for us is to grow up, to act according to our new position in Christ. But it all starts when we simply turn to Christ and believe in him. As Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And believing in Christ simply means that we trust him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to save us. So to turn to Christ and Christ only is the only way that we will have entrance into heaven. And I pray that you will make that decision. If you have not, I pray that you will. All right, well, it's 7 o'clock, so that will close out our session there. And so let me go ahead and stop sharing. And um, do we have any questions over tonight's lesson? Any questions over tonight's lesson? Okay. 
this this week uh, I was had um, run into someone who was talking about atheism, and then they were I was giving them some of the the stuff that you were talking about. I, I had uh, found some stuff from Norm Geister, mm-hmm. found some stuff from uh, Frank Torek on it. Lovely. Uh, <clears throat> a book that they wrote together. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And then they try to go over to the fact that, well, I'm an agnostic then. Well, since, <laughs> since atheism isn't good, I'm an agnostic. Right. So so you, you're not sure whether there is or isn't a God. Uh, right. Well, then you should have never found that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. The agnostic is a practical atheist. <laughs> uh, because even if they say, well, I don't know, it still leaves them in, the, it still leaves them in a place of moral bankruptcy. And that book by Norman Geisler, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, is, is a great read. It really is good. I wrote an article some years ago called uh, The Despair of Atheism and the Hope of Christianity. And I'll include that in the email that I send out tonight when I send it out with everybody. Because I, I, I quote several atheists who really uh, uh, really set forth the basis and, and their worldview based on atheism. And it's really despairing. I mean, and if you really think it through, it really, it really, I mean, it really leaves you in a place where there's no hope, there's no value, there's no meaning, there's no purpose. And it just, it really is a place of just intellectual and moral bankruptcy, I would argue. So. Well, I asked her, uh, how certain are you that you're an agnostic? <laughs> right. How, how sure are you that you're not sure? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She kind of. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I love that. Yeah, there's some good resources out there. I appreciate that, Stephen. <laughs> hey, we got Judd up and then Susan. Okay, Judd, go ahead. Yeah, I think uh, you, you you did a good job in framing atheism because it's the ultimate illogical belief system. And it is a belief system, right? You have to have faith that there is no God. And, uh, right. Uh, the book by Norman Geisler, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, that says it all. Mm-hmm. You have to have the moral absolute that there are no moral absolutes. Right? right. You have to believe that everything that we see around us is random. Mm-hmm. When Romans 1 and Psalm 19, everybody knows that that's not true. That's right. And really, the ultimate atheist, right? If you put atheism into practice, you'll appreciate this, given your background. Mm. You'll be a criminal. Because what does the criminal believe? Hey, if I can get mm-hmm. away with it, I'm going to do it. That's right. That's that's practical atheism right there. There are no absolutes. If I can get away with it, I'm going to do it. And that's why in our country, atheists were not allowed to hold office in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because Everybody knew that, hey, the Christian has these absolutes from Scripture, and whether I can get away with it or not, I'm not getting away with it before God, so I'm not doing it. But the you know the criminal, the atheist, doesn't have those restraints. You're absolutely right, 100% spot on. I absolutely agree. And, and I think that's where we've seen the breakdown politically with a lot of people coming into power, and there's been a, a moral shift. And you see laws based upon that because the foundation has shifted. Yeah, I had a discussion with a teacher a few years back, and we were talking about uh, evolution being taught in schools. 
uh, with a lot of youth. And, uh, and basically the idea is that we're basically just um, uh, a higher form of, of an animal life, but we're no different on the spectrum as far as the other animals. We're just considered a higher intellectual uh, animal, but we're nonetheless an animal. And I said, well, if you teach children that that's all they are as an animal, why should you not expect them to behave anything other than like an animal? And I said, I said, you know, for example, I said, if, if I'm out on the out, out out on the Serengeti and there's a group of lions around and uh, and they're hungry and they've surrounded the last zebra on the planet. I said, do you think they care? Or do you only think that they care about their stomach? No, they're going to they're going to take that life and they're not going to care that they're going to drive another species to extinction. And uh, anyway, it was just sort of along that same lines. But we see that being played out in a lot of our youth today, because if we teach them that there is no God and that we're just sort you know, we're just on the spectrum of, of animals, then then, you know, why are we surprised when they act like animals? You know, and that's where I scratch my head sometimes. Um, Susan, you had a comment. Yeah, I just wanted to say you mentioned Francis Schaeffer's book. Mm -hmm. uh, what? How shall we then live? Right. And I have to say, I read that about two years ago. That literally blew me away more than any other book I've ever read. Mm -hmm. When he wrote it in the I think early seventies, right? Late sixties. Mm -hmm. He was talking. And uh, he was talking about today. He w it was as if he had a crystal ball. Yep. And it was because he had the word, and the word shows what happens mm -hmm. when things devolve. Yep. And it just it just was the most amazing book. Yes. For me. Anyway. Yes. So have, have you mentioned that? My eyes lit up. <laughs> I, I love that. Thank you for that. Have you have you seen the video series, the ten part video series based on the book? I saw some of it, I think, because okay. usually when I read a book that I really love, I I dig for a while mm -hmm. to see if I can find more by that author yeah. and find out more information about mm -hmm. the story and the history of it and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. So yeah. I I did I did see a lot of yeah. the uh, a lot of the videos, yeah. but just the just the book itself was just absolutely amazing. I kept telling my husband yeah. when I was reading that it's as, it's as if it's as if he could see the future i'm with you I mean, back, back then and that is amazing to me which is amazing yes i agree with you a thousand times absolutely genius and it's like he's speaking to our generation today and those issues and yeah i've got his entire collection when i uh finished uh my bachelor's degree i had a friend buy me his uh his complete set and uh Yes, I've really enjoyed his writings. But yes, I, I agree with you. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Thank you. And Joe, you had a had a comment, buddy. Yeah, uh, great study. I uh, enjoyed it. And uh, you you were uh, uh, defining righteousness and and uh, how we miss the mark. And and uh, uh, a little while ago, I was a part of a small. Um, home Bible study, and we were going over Watchman Nee's book, The Normal Christian Life. I don't know if you're familiar with that. A little bit, yeah. It's been a while since I've looked at that. Mm -hmm. and, and and he uses Galatians 2.20 uh, to say that, you know, we no longer have a um, sin nature. And that doesn't mean we don't sin. It's right. just um, the mechanics of um, how we sin is that we choose to sin. And uh, um, since then... Um, 
I've been trying to uh, put together in scripture, you know, wh where does it say we have a sin nature? You know, because in, in Galatians 20 says it, it died on the cross. Right. And that's that's his uh, argument. Right. I was just hoping you can comment on that. Sure, absolutely. Um, and so when the Bible uses the term death, and I'm going to go back to my notes here briefly, when the Bible uses the term death, death in its basic meaning means separation, not cessation. And, uh, and this is one of those things where when we think about um, how terms are used, and so... Um, so like when we think about, let me go back here, let me find this. So sinners and Adam, sinners by nature, sinners by choice. Let me find my notes here. So there are certain passages that um, uh, communicate this idea. So like in Romans 7, first of all, let me say this. Death means separation. So like when it talks about spiritual death, uh, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, there was a spiritual death that occurred because God said, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And so when they ate, there was, in fact, a death that occurred. Not a physical death, but a spiritual death in the fact that they were separated from God in time. The second death in Revelation, uh, uh, when it talks about being cast into the lake of fire, that is separation from God in eternity. And that's called the second death. But death does not mean that something ceases to be. It simply means that it's separated from something else. And the second death is separation because people continue on in the lake of fire in unending existence in conscious uh, suffering away from God. But death means separation. Uh, when we talk about physical death, physical death, uh, biblically speaking, does not mean cessation of life. It means separation. And so like Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, and the body returns to the dust and the spirit or the ruach returns to God who gave it. And of course, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that to be absent from the body is to be face to face with the Lord. And so when we think of physical death, we don't think of something ceasing to be. We think of separation, the separation of the soul from the body. And so that's what happens at death. And so when we think about death as it's used throughout the Bible, the concept is, is that of separation, not cessation. And so when we talk about um, being dead to sin, we talk about being separated from its tyrannical power. Not that it ceases to be present within us, because the sin nature continues to be active. And the sin nature is the source of internal temptation. It is the source of internal temptation, because it can tempt you to do all sorts of things. Paul says in Romans uh, 7, and the NASB uh, titles this, The Conflict of Two Natures, where it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Now, by the way, he's talking about the two natures here. When he uses the term I, he's bouncing back and forth between the new man and the old man, this, this civil war within. He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand, but I am practicing what I would, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law of God, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now sin there translates the Greek noun hamartia, and a noun is a person, place, or thing. And so there he's talking about the sin thing or the sin nature. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, 
For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And notice again the bouncing back and forth. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it. But again, notice sin, which dwells in me. Now, Paul is talking here as a believer because he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, uh, in the embodiment of the sin nature. Notice, in the one who wants to do good. Now, in verse 22, he says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. That is his new nature. The new nature is the new nature that wants to please God, but the old nature is that nature that we inherited from from our father, uh, from Adam down, which is that proclivity uh, to act contrary to the character and the will of God. And so he talks about that waging war, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war. And so this war is what's going on. He talks about that similarly over in Galatians 5 and um, verse 17, where he says, For the flesh, and there he uses the Greek noun sarks, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to each other. And for the advancing believer, there is that struggle, and that struggle is between the two natures within us. You know, Paul says in uh, Romans uh, 13, Uh, verses 12 through 14, he says, The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Um, He says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. By the way, is it possible for believers to behave those ways? Absolutely. Um, uh, If it were not, then the directive would be uh, superfluous. But he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh uh, in regards to its loss. So he's clearly talking to believers, but he tells them to make no provision for the flesh. Well, what does that mean? It means to stop exposing yourself to the things that excite the flesh. Stop, exp- you know, if you have a problem with alcoholism, don't go to bars. Don't hang out with people who, who drink a lot. You know, if that's, your, if that's where your sin nature is weak, uh, then make no provision for the flesh. Stop exposing yourself to the things that excite the flesh. Now, when Paul, back in Romans uh, 6, uh, verse uh, 11, when he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Being dead to sin does not mean that the sin nature ceases to be. And this is where I would disagree with me on this. Uh, though I may agree on other things, I would disagree with him on that point. Because here to be dead to sin means to be dead to its tyrannical power. And this is meaningful because Paul goes on in verse 12. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Well, again, who is Paul talking to? He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to non-Christians. And again, this directive would be meaningless if it were not the case. And so he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, that is separated from Satan's from the sin nature's tyrannical power, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin, that is the sin nature, notice, here it is, shall not be master over you. So when he talks about sin here, again, he's using the noun 
hamartia. So he says, sin shall not be master over you. And there he's talking about the sin nature that is resident within each Christian. So I think that there is, and I've just hit a few verses, and this is just off the top of my head, so there's there's other notes that could be expounded upon as well. But that just kind of gives you sort of the, the quick summary of that. Is that helpful at all? Yes, that was excellent. I, uh, your explanation that sin is a noun, mm-hmm. um, that was excellent. Yeah. And, um, I've asked this question to a number of people um, and haven't gotten any answers at all. Okay. And um, I appreciate um, uh, your answer. That was uh, an excellent answer. Thank you very much. Well, very good. Yeah, and there's other notes on that. Uh, Dr. Robert Leitner uh, wrote a book called uh, um, Evangelical Theology, and uh, it's, a, it's a really good book. But he, he addresses that in there. Actually, you can find it with a number of people. You do find the difference between the noun and the verb in 1 John 1, 1.8 and 1 John 1.10. Uh, in 1 John 1, 1.8, John says, if we say that we have no sin, and there he uses the noun, hamartia, if we say that we have no sin thing or sin nature, he says, then the truth is not in us. In verse 10, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, and there he uses the verb hamartano, so there he's talking about the production of sin. And so I think that the, uh, that the, uh, that the believer uh, at the moment of salvation acquires a new nature, and that's what Paul talks about, that, that conflict in Galatians 5.17. But again, when we think of death, we should not think of it as cessation, the ceasing to be. We should think of it as separation, because that's what death means by and large throughout the Scripture. So, And Carol, you had a, a question? Well, we had, we had Stephen and then Carol. Oh, Stephen, go ahead. Oh no! I was just gonna. I was just gonna ask if would you argue that First uh, John um, um, uh, three nine and First John, uh, I think it's First John one verses eight and nine, uh, are also um, a continuation of Romans chapter seven, like Paul, a continuation of at least the thought with regard to the it being the sin nature and that the thing being. The thing I don't want to do, I, I, I do, and the things that I do are the things that I don't want to do, and the things that I don't want to do is that what that I keep doing, and that not I, but the the sin that dwelleth in me. Yes, and that's that's kind of tricky to work through when you're looking at that. And the passage you mentioned in First John three nine is commonly a, a controversial passage, and it says that no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Well, that's talking about the seed of the new nature, because the new nature cannot sin. The new nature is from God, and it cannot sin. Uh, and so that's what is going on there in 1 John 3, 9, uh, when it's talking about, you know, cannot sin. Um, and so that's, that's one of those things where, you know, there are certain passages that are challenging. They are. Uh, and sometimes good exegesis helps with understanding of that, and sometimes the exegesis doesn't help with that. (laughs) Sometimes you're left with just a difficult passage. Uh, I think of in Peter, where Peter talks about the writings of Paul being difficult to understand, and I find that ironic because I find Peter difficult to understand. (laughs) So anyway, thank you for that, Stephen. I like that. And Carol, uh, you had a question or comment? I just have a a simple... um note for that it's jesus was born of the holy spirit he was born from a woman Mm -hmm. but not from a man if he was born from a man he would have a sin nature right 
So that's why he's born of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That is 100% correct, Carol. And I've, yeah, I've covered that in past lessons. We're actually going to hit that again here in the near future. But you're right. And that's one of the reasons why the virgin conception was so important. Uh, because the sin nature and Adam's original sin is passed on uh, from the father to the child. Uh, look, everybody has a sin nature, and you got that from your dad, not your mom. Okay, uh, So blame dad, uh, especially if you have a strong sin nature, because it probably means dad had one too. Um, but it is one of those things where Romans five twelve through 19 makes that very clear, that, that through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so the acquisition of the sin nature comes from the father to the child. And this is why Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by means of the Holy Spirit. And when uh, the angel Gabriel came to Mary in Luke 1, 26 through 38 and comes to her, uh, he approaches her and he tells her, he says, uh, he says, God is with you. Well, that phrase is uh, loaded because hakurios metasu, the Lord is with you. Um, well, that's code language for God is about to do something wonderful in your life. And then he proceeds to reveal what that is. And what he proceeds to reveal is that God, the Holy Spirit, is going to supernaturally create within her the biological life that uh, will be uh, that of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in hypostatic union, undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. And so the fact that Jesus did not have a biological father meant that he could be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Parthenogenesis is the terminology for that, virgin conceived, virgin born. And so Jesus could come into this world minus a sin nature, and he could go into this world. And so Jesus was born as Adam was created, perfect. And as the last Adam, he accomplished what the first Adam failed to do. But Carol, your point is 1000% correct. That's, that's exactly why Jesus, uh, why it was necessary that he not have a biological father. Uh, Joseph was his legal father, but not his biological father. So you're absolutely correct on that. Good point. Anybody else have any questions or comments on any of this? I don't see anybody right now, Steve, but I, I want to take this moment to say thank you for all that are praying for and prayed for my dad. Yeah. Uh, me here in Houston doing well. Okay. Uh, I thank you very much. Very good. To make that across. Yes, and glad to be in prayer for him always. Yes, always let me know. Amen. All right, everybody. Well, let's go ahead and close it out. And I thank you all very much. Um, I'm going to take next week off. I need to give my brain a break because I've been over studied lately and my brain is feeling a little mushy so we'll we'll take a break for next week but we will resume uh our continued study in soteriology uh in two weeks from today thank you so very much and i hope you enjoy and to the full your week off i will thank you so much i appreciate that i'll be with you all take care all right thank you y'all be blessed Recording stopped. You have a good week, Steve. You too, Dan. Good to see you, buddy. Thanks for your help. I appreciate you helping with this. Nancy, have a good evening, dear. Thank you. Good night, Carol. You're on mute, Nancy. Bye-bye. Carol's dog (laughs) is praying. (laughs) 